All right, everybody, go ahead and grab a seat. And uh, we'll get going with week four of our Ask Anything series, uh, where the big question this morning is, is God anti-gay? Welcome to church. Uh, we ask, uh, if you're new here, seriously, we are a community that values having real talk about the real questions of life and faith. And um, if we're going to get going this morning, I'll just start with some real talk of my own. Um, I don't know if there's a topic that I've spent more time thinking about, um, researching, and wanting to understand more in recent years than this one. Um, because here's, here's what I know without a shadow of a doubt. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And um, not only that, but what you see in the life of Jesus is that those who are the most marginalized by society historically, those that you might think are the least likely um, to be people that would hang around a religious person, well, they flocked to Jesus, and that Jesus seemed to have a special spot in his heart where he just moved towards them and leaned in towards them, and that's why they responded by flocking to him. And so I know all of this without a doubt, and yet, um, as I think about the gay friends in my life, I think they probably... In fact, it's not just I think, and again, I'm going to have to speak in generalities today. Um, I know that there are different people and different stories, but by and large, I know without a shadow of a doubt that God loves every member of the LGBTQ plus community. And yet so many of my gay friends seem to feel anything but that. And if we're having real, real talk, I think there's a shocking lack of gay people in this community here. And so that's caused me to take a fresh look at what I've been told is a very simple thing. And, and what I want to do today is I want to invite you to do the same. Um, I'm well aware that we all probably have um, gay people in our life that we love that are a part of our life. And I'm well aware that we probably all have strongly held convictions on this. What I would invite you to do this morning is to lay aside your convictions for a moment and enter in with me to the word of God and see what God has to say to the gay community and to you and to me and to see if he has a vision that maybe we've missed something here. I want to invite you to enter in with me. And, and if you're willing to do that this morning, here, here's what I should tell you from personal experience. You should be prepared to be challenged. Um, if I preach this sermon right, I think everyone in this room is going to feel challenged in some way. I, I know I have as I've been digging into this, but here's what I can also promise you. Um, if God's going to challenge us this morning, he's going to challenge us to lead us more into true life. Are you ready? All right. Well, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at, uh, number one, why is this even a question? Number two, we're going to look at Jesus' vision for the gay community. And number three, we're going to look at why would anybody take him up on this. Um, so let's start with why is this a question. Um, several years ago, I started going for weekly hikes with a guy named Glenn. 
Um, Now, it wasn't because I needed company on my hikes. Um, I don't know about you. I'm the kind of person who um, I prefer to hike alone, um, where I put in some headphones and I reflect on my life and I pray and think and just try to get clarity on my life. Is anyone with me on that one? Yes. Um, And so it wasn't because I needed company that I started doing weekly hikes with Glenn, but I started doing these weekly hikes with Glenn because... um, well, he, he was the brother of a good friend in our small group at church, and um, his sister that was in our small group, she was an active part of the church, um, walking with Jesus, um, but, but Glenn, who grew up in the same home, same background, same experiences, uh, wanted nothing to do with the church. And so when, when he expressed an interest to go for a hike with me, and I, I had a dog back then uh, with my dog, Raylan, um, uh, I, I said, this is great. This is a chance to get to know Glenn. And so as I got to get to know Glenn, um, I got to know his story. I got to know why he wanted to do nothing with church. And um, Glenn's story is maybe a lot like stories that you have heard. Glenn um, told me about how growing up, he realized he was different. Um, he wasn't attracted to girls in the same way that his friends were. And um, uh, Glenn, because he was different, uh, was mocked for his lack of game with the ladies by all of his friends. And um, I mean, look, and I'll say this, as someone who was a teenage boy at one time, um, this is just what guys do, right? We mock each other. This is our love language. This is our way of communicating, hey, I love you. We're not emotionally secure enough to say the L word. And so we just mock each other. Um, but Listening to Glenn, I realized how if, if, if you already have a sense you're different, that kind of hits a little differently. And, and so he told me, yeah, this was kind of my background. This was my experience. And, and look, this was the 90s. So people weren't talking about this like they are today. No one was celebrating this. And so he just stayed kind of quiet about it. He didn't know what to do with it until one day at church, uh, there was a sermon about homosexuality. And so, okay, great, maybe we're going to hear from God on this. And um, in that sermon, my friend Glenn heard that he was an abomination before God, that he is unnatural, and that he might have a demon. And and for him, that was the last straw. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be mocked. It's another thing to have someone with the word of God open say, the reason that you feel so different is because you're an abomination. And so for several reasons, I'm sure it wasn't just that message, but he ended up walking away from the church for his his own mental health. And for years, I thought Glenn's story must be an anomaly. I mean, it had to be, right? That he just went to some crazy church that the pastor maybe just had a bad week and he, he got up there and blasted some people. But that's not... That's not representative of the whole. But I, I got to tell you, as I've dug into this and talked to more people and heard more stories, I've realized that Glenn's experience of feeling like a monster, feeling mocked and rejected, is common amongst those in the LGBTQ plus community who grow up around the church. And so I think the most basic reason that this is a question I think the reason people ask, is God anti-gay, is because the people of God, by and large, I know there are exceptions, but the people of God, by and large, I think have acted anti-gay. Now, before you get defensive, 
Um, let me say this. I don't think that every church, and certainly not every Christian, hates gay people. Um, in fact, if I'm going to assume the best of this church that my friend grew up in, um, I'd like to believe that that pastor believed that he was really helping his congregation by uh, warning them, by speaking truth. But I got to tell you, when you single out homosexuality as the one thing that's unacceptable to struggle with, when you talk, when you only talk about gay people to uh, condemn their behavior and never to commend their faith, when you tell people to get back in the closet, this is the message that they subtly pick up. They were not really wanted here. And sadly, what happens in a lot of cases, though, again, certainly not all, is a lot of people have projected their negative experience with the church back onto God. And so I think the reason this is a question is that we, as Jesus' people, by and large, have obscured his love for the LGBTQ plus community through our own hypocrisy, judgmental spirit, and I'll just speak for myself on this one, maybe you can resonate with this, lack of interest in hearing the stories and pain and reasons of this community. One of the things that I have felt ashamed of as I've dug into this is that I'm 34 years old, been a pastor for more than 10 years, and I'm only now starting to ask questions. Like, I wonder why we don't have many gay people here. And so, if you are someone in the LGBTQ plus community, um, I just want to say, I'm sorry for what you've experienced. I'm sorry for how I and Christians like me have made it harder for you to hear the love and the heart of God for you. And what I hope you can hear this morning and take away is that God loves you, he is for you, and he wants to lead you into life. That's what I hope you'll take away. Now, the question is, what does that life look like? Um, there's a lot of debate about this in the church today. What is God's heart for the gay community? And, and some in the church today have said, hey, look, we've not only mistreated our gay brothers and sisters and image bearers of our God, but we've misunderstood Jesus. You'll, you'll hear this all the time. People will say, Jesus never addressed homosexuality, and if he did, he would have been affirming of the type of loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships that we see today. And, and I'll be really honest with you, as I dove into this study, um, I wanted that to be true. Just real talk, I, that, that'd make my life easier. I, I wanted that to be true. But after studying this as best as I know how, and wrestling with God, and asking questions like why, and digging in, I, I, I've got to stand before you this morning and say, that is just as poor of a representation of Jesus as everything else we've been talking about for 10 minutes now. It's just a misrepresentation in a different direction. And so if we, the people of God, are going to go, if we're going to stop being part of the problem and start being part of the solution, I think we have to get back to Jesus's vision for sex and marriage 
and what that means for our gay friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors. And so that's what I want to spend the rest of our time doing this morning. I want to get to God's vision because I know he's good. And I know he wants to lead us into life. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7, where we're going to dig into this. Um, Oftentimes when this topic comes up, there's seven kind of common passages, and I put them in your discussion guide. Um, And and those are all important, and those are all built scaffolding around what we're going to look at today. But I think it all starts with Jesus. And so I want to take us directly to the words of Jesus and to look at his vision for sex and marriage and think about what this means for our gay friends. So Mark chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. We're middle of the story. We read this. And he, that's Jesus, said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, gotcha, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Here's what's going on in these verses. Jesus is in an argument with the religious leaders of his day about how we can get clean. Um, how we can feel whole again. That's what all this talk of defilement is about. I, I know that's a strange word. We don't really use that language today, but it's a, it's a very Jewish way of talking about feeling dirty, of feeling broken, of feeling full of shame. I mean, ju- just look back at the list and, and, and let's think about some things. Have you ever deceived someone and felt dirty about it afterwards? Um, Have you ever slandered someone and said something that you wouldn't dare say to their face behind their back and then felt regret about it? Have you ever done something that when you look back on it, you go, I can't believe I did that? That's what defilement is about. And Jesus has this fascinating conversation with these guys about how he's really come to make us clean. And and, and there's... um, I want to preach that sermon right now. I preached that sermon a year ago. It's on our website. Otherwise, this will be a two-hour sermon. Um, I just want to pull out one thing for us right now. Jesus says one of the things that will make us defiled is sexual immorality. Um, that's a translation of the Greek word porneia. Maybe you hear it in there. That's where we get our modern word um, pornography from. And pornography, um, uh, excuse me, porneia refers to a lot more than what pictures you look at. Um, Porneia uh, refers to any form of sexual expression outside of marriage. And so that would include fornication, um, sleeping around before you're married. That would include adultery, sleeping with someone else while you're married that's not your spouse. Um, That would include pornography. And yes, that would include homosexuality. And I want to be really clear about a couple of things right now. Um, Jesus is not saying that same-sex attraction defiles a person. Um, You'll hear this sometimes. People will say, to be gay is to be a sin. Um, But it really kind of depends on what you mean by to be 
gay because um, if what you mean by being gay is that you are attracted to someone of the same sex as you, which is how most people use the word in our world today, well, that's not something the Bible ever identifies as sinful. This is a carryover of the bad theology of the ex-gay movement that really dominated the last half of the 20th century in Christendom. And and if that's something that interests you, if I've piqued your interest, um, I would highly recommend this book by um, a gay pastor named Greg Johnson, who lived through the ex-gay movement firsthand is still walking with Jesus in spite of the scars he carries from that. And he writes this book to call the church back to a more historic and life-giving approach to the gay community. Um, It's a fast, fantastic book. I would highly recommend this to you if that's something you're interested in. But the big idea is... um, Pornea is talk, not talking about um, attraction. It's talking about action. It's saying the gay or straight, we all have these desires that come out of our heart, that if we act on them, some of them will lead to defilement. Um, and that's a, a gay thing. That's a straight thing. That's a human thing. That might be in the area of sex. It might just be in the area of anger, that you'll have these desires when you're driving, that if you give in to them, It's going to make you feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just cut that person off and they just pulled into the church parking lot. Pornea is speaking specifically to same-sex, or not not just same-sex, but any type of sexual behavior outside of marriage. So that's the first thing I want to be clear about. We're talking about action, not attraction. But the second thing I want to be clear about is Jesus' audience certainly would have understood homosexual behavior to be included when he uses this word. When, when, when they would talk about pernea, um, Jewish people in Jesus' day universally believed that same-sex behavior would defile a person would make them unclean. And again, you've got to hear that alongside the list along with um, gossiping and slandering and having pride and thinking you haven't done everything on the list so far. All of these things contribute to the brokenness of our world. But homosexual behavior, same-sex behavior, was certainly included in the list. Now, it's possible that Jesus disagreed with the Jewish consensus of his day. It's totally possible. For example, the Jewish consensus of his day said, bacon sandwiches off limits for God's people. And Jesus says, hey, I've come to proclaim the good news. Bacon's on the menu now. It's possible that Jesus disagreed, but you would kind of expect him to say that if he did. But rather than saying, you've heard it said, but truly I say to you, what Jesus does is he affirms the commonly held Jewish sexual ethic of his day, which is built on the Old Testament and several of those passages that often get talked about in these messages. What he's saying is that we all have these desires that come out of our heart. And if you act on them, it's going to make you feel unclean. It's going to make you feel broken. It's going to make you feel regret. And he loves us. He doesn't want us to feel regret. So he gives this teaching about this. And included in a long list of behaviors that we can all resonate with, there is same-sex behavior in that list. Now, um, the second you start saying that there might be sexual desires that we have, gay or straight, that we shouldn't just act on instantly, people in our culture will say, you're what? Any words? 
Hypocrites, yep. I was reading an article over the weekend that says Christians are prudes and that we've ruined the sex industry. I'm like, gosh, I wonder if the people that work in the sex industry actually feel that way. People will often say, oh, Christians are such prudes. You, you, you repress your desires. You don't give in to them. But what, what I would just say to that um, is um, if you read the Bible, you'll see that God's actually very pro-sex. So, so the whole thing that like, Christians are afraid of sex, um, it's certainly not true of our God. You could argue maybe individual Christians. But if you read the Bible, and, and, and this might be what you say to your non-Christian friends, read the Bible. You don't have to get far. Page one. God creates a naked man, he creates a naked woman, he puts them together and says, have a good time. Sex is God's idea. He didn't find them in the garden and go, what are you doing? He thought this thing up. And in fact, it's not just Adam and Eve. If you continue on in the Bible, there's a whole book in the Old Testament devoted to sex. Some of you are like, which book? I'd like to do a study. (laughs) God is very pro-sex, so don't you let anyone tell you that God is anti-sex or he's such a prude. See, if you read the Bible, what you'll see is God wants us to enjoy this good gift that he has made and he wants us to enjoy it in the confines of a stable, committed, covenantal relationship called marriage where two people are committed to seeking the good of the other person. Because otherwise, Jesus says, this gift, if you don't enjoy it within the safety of that type of committed love, It will rip you apart. It will destroy you. It will make you feel defiled and broken and not whole. And I can tell you from personal experience that that's absolutely true. And so for as loving as it seems to push for Jesus to say that this is okay, if Jesus is right, then that's the opposite of love. Because love always wants what's best for the object of our love. And according to Jesus, any form of sex outside of a committed, loving marriage is going to hurt us in the end. And he loves us and he doesn't want us to be hurt. Now, this leads to the marriage question. Um, What if two gay people commit to a loving, monogamous marriage? And and this is really at the heart of the whole argument here, because what people who will argue that Jesus would be affirming of same-sex relationships today, what they will say is the reason that Jesus didn't break with the sexual ethic of his day is because same-sex relationships in the ancient world were inherently abusive. And so he's not for abusive relationships, same sex or heterosexual. Like he's not for that, but he is for any loving, monogamous, committed relationship. And so the argument will go into, yeah, they had no category for same sex attraction back then. And so why would Jesus call that out? It was something very different than what we see today. They weren't talking about loving, committed two partners committing to one another They're talking about an abusive, out-of-control lust. And and I got to tell you, when I heard that, I was like, this reframes everything. Here we go. This is the context that makes sense of everything that doesn't make sense to me. The problem is, as I dug into it, that's absolutely not true. 
And it's so frustrating to me that people will publish books and have conferences where they say that's true, where they rely on bad scholarship just to sell some books or sell some tickets. Or Maybe I should give them the benefit of the doubt. It's possible that some of the people saying this just haven't checked the historical sources and they're just repeating what they heard because it sounds sophisticated. But I've checked the historical sources, and that's absolutely not true. What I can tell you is they absolutely had a category for same-sex attraction in the ancient world. They didn't use that terminology, but you read this stuff. They had a category for it that was inherent from birth. And just like today, they debated the causes, just like there's no real consensus on the cause today. There wasn't a real consensus back then, but they had a belief that some people are born this way, some people are born that way. And while some same-sex relationships were abusive and gross and awful, there were some that were loving and committed like what we see today. And look, I don't expect you to take my word for that. I'm going to give you another book recommendation Here's a book called People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. Preston Sprinkle has two chapters devoted to going through the evidence for same-sex attraction and homosexuality and all that stuff in the ancient world. And that's not even, I'll tell you, that's not even the best part of this book. Um, What I love about this book is he digs into nerdy things like history and cites primary sources And he'll dig into, like, the Greek words and texts that get debated on stuff like this. But he does all of that in a way that's readable, with a compassionate tone. And so I would say if this is a topic, just in general today, that's one that's personally of interest to you, maybe you have someone in your life, maybe this is your life, I would encourage you to pick this book up. I don't know a better resource on the topic than this book. And he certainly speaks to that. Greg Johnson, by the way, in his book that I recommended earlier, also has an entire chapter devoted on this. It's not hard to get into the historical stuff if you're interested in that. Um, his discussion of pederasty in the ancient world is probably worth the book of the price alone. Some of you are like, peda what? Okay. Um, Here's the good news. That's for those that are interested. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to check and see. Um, But here's the good news. If your head hurts right now, you do not need to become a history major to understand Jesus' heart here. He addressed the marriage question directly for us in Mark chapter 10. Uh, Listen to this. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus is in another argument with the Pharisees here. They, they lost the last one. They thought if we pick another one, maybe we'll get it. Um, maybe we'll get them to say something that would get the masses angry with him and make him walk away. And so they ask him about a controversial question in his day. Divorce was a real hot topic in that day. And if that's something that interests you, that sermon's also on our website. I can't get into the whole divorce discussion. I just want to point out one thing. Let's read and then I'll point it out. Listen to his answer. He answered them. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce, and Jesus responds with two quotes from the opening pages of Genesis. And and you'd miss that in our Mark text if you didn't look at your footnotes at the bottom or if you were here in our Genesis series. I hope you picked it up. He quotes two unrelated texts from Genesis chapter one uh, one and two. He quotes Genesis 127 and Genesis 224 if you're the note-taking type and want to look it up. And, And the second reference makes a lot of sense. He says the reason that God divorces not God's design is because in marriage, God knits two souls together in a way that no human was ever made to break. And if you break that special bond, it's going to break your heart. Genesis 2.24 makes total sense in this context. Um, The question is, why would Jesus quote Genesis 1.27, which says that in the beginning, God made them male and female? That's all it says. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Why would Jesus quote that in an answer on divorce? In what way is male and female relevant to the question of divorce? It's not unless... Having two distinct, male and female, but equal, made in the image of God, it's not relevant unless having two distinct but equal partners. And the dynamic harmony that occurs there is essential to Jesus' vision for marriage, which apparently it is. Jesus goes out of his way to say, we can't talk about marriage unless we talk about the harmony that occurs when a man and a woman comes together. Because until you get that, we can't even talk about ending a marriage until you understand what a marriage is. And and this is where it's so hard. I have gay friends who, as I've gotten to know them, I see that they have a romantic relationship that's real. Um, I see real love there. Um, I've picked up dynamics that in some ways look more healthy than some of the heterosexual marriages I've seen. And so... When Jesus says, without one man and one woman, you can't have a marriage, it's a hard word when we live in a culture that celebrates gay marriage and has these relationships that we would be jerks to deny that something real is going on there. But we'd also be fools to deny that what Jesus is saying is if you don't have one man and one woman, you might have something, it might be real but you will never have what God intended when he created this thing called marriage. And so his invitation to the gay community, it's not, you're bad, you're dirty, how could you think that? It's, okay, I get it. You're like every other human I've ever made. You have ideas about flourishing, and I know it looks good. I know that it's right in front of you, and it's so tangible. I know that it looks good for you, but I have something better for you. So come, follow me. 
That's Jesus' invitation to the gay community. I know it looks good, but I have something better. So pick up your cross and follow me. If you try to have your life on your own terms, you will lose it. Because this life is fleeting. This life is um, full of flawed people who fail, even the people that we love most. But if you're willing to give up your ideas, and trust me, I will lead you into a type of life you could never imagine on your own. I know it's real, but I have something better for you, so come and follow me. That's Mark 8, 34 through the end of the chapter, by the way. And look, I don't even have time for this, but I'm going to say this. This is not an invitation to loneliness. I've been in enough conversations to know how that can be heard. Like, it's not, like, gosh, no, it's not an invitation to loneliness. We live in a culture that is so obsessed with sex that we can't even conceive of intimacy and fullness of life apart from it. Um, Greg Johnson in his book um, quotes Christians from ages past who understood singleness and celibacy and this beautiful calling. Like C.S. Lewis has some incredible things to say about this. And so I I know we live in the fishbowl where our culture says you are however much sex you're having. We've got to get outside of our cultural moment and hear from Christians throughout history and more importantly from our God who transcends history. That though that might seem like the only path to intimacy, it is not the most common path. And frankly, to do a little biblical theology, it's not even the main path. Someday we'll be like the angels. We won't be married. And Jesus brought that full intimacy and full life of the age to come crashing down into our age. And in the life of Jesus, we see a human that lived a fuller life than anyone that's ever lived. And I don't think you can disagree with that. We don't, the world doesn't celebrate your birthday. Your family might. The entire world celebrates Jesus' birthday because we know that he lived a fuller life than anyone. Jesus lived the fullest human life ever as a single celibate man. And so I know know that he has something real to offer my gay friends here because he showed us the fullness of life. And while marriage is a beautiful gift in this life until the age to come, it is not the only path to intimacy and fullness that God has for his children. Jesus has something so real and so beautiful to offer to the gay community when he says, I know that looks real, but I have something better. I'm speaking from experience. I'm not only living this full life, I'm the author of it. It flows from me. And if you follow me, I'll give you that life. Jesus is offering something that we could never find in this world. But our gay friends will never experience this if in the name of compassion, we spend all of our energy trying to explain away what Jesus really said. And look, I I know how this sounds. I'm well aware of how all of this sounds. 
Um, I've had a couple of people over the last year just ask about our church, interested in coming here. And um, I had one friend I've known for a long time that had a friend they wanted to recommend to us. And so this is a question people are going to start asking. What do you believe about homosexuality? What, what, what does your church teach? And so I engaged in this conversation with someone that I have a relationship with, context with, that we've enjoyed one another. And what that person said, after hearing what I had to say, is, well, then I guess Jesus just isn't for gay people. And I could feel the disappointment in their words with me, is the Jesus guy. And so we're right back to our original question. Is God anti-gay? Is the problem Jesus? Is Jesus' teaching, as we've seen it this morning, is Is Jesus' teaching fundamentally dehumanizing to our gay friends and family members and neighbors and colleagues and image bearers that fill this valley? And I have wrestled with that question. And I'll wrestle. And here's what I'm starting to realize. I think that it is if you remove it from the gospel. I think the teaching of Jesus is dehumanizing to not only our gay brothers and sisters, but really to anybody if you remove the teaching of Jesus from the gospel. I mean, take just what we saw in Mark 7. That offends everybody if you think he came to point his finger at you and say, stop being defiled, and you don't understand that he's come into the world to make us clean because he loves us. And and Jesus tells, my words are going to fail me. Jesus has a wonderful parable that I think connects all of this. In Mark 13, he says, "Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold everything he had and he bought that field. And I believe the reason that people get turned off by the teaching of Jesus on this topic or any other one is because they haven't seen the treasure in the field. They, they look at what Jesus is teaching and they say, you want me to give up what? I've got some good things going here. Why would I give that up? That's crazy. And it would be crazy if there wasn't treasure in the field. But the good news is there's treasure in the field. There's a God in heaven who sees us, defiled and broken as we are. And we're so used to trying to have to cover up our uncleanness and our brokenness from other people in hopes that if we cover it up long enough, they might love this version of us that we project out there. And God looks at us. And he sees us as we are. Can't hide from him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He has every reason to recoil from us. And when he looks at us, he's filled with love. He is so filled with love that he would enter our defile and broken world and go to the cross where he would bear our sin and our pain 
and take it to the grave and leave it there so he can rise again and say, I love you so much. I have taken on death, defilement, everything that ruins your life, everything that is hard and difficult, and I've left it in the grave and I've risen to give you a new life if you would just trust me and receive it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And the reason he had to go to the cross to take all of this stuff from us is so that he's leading us more and more into life. In those days when we inevitably fail and do something that we go, I can't believe that I did that again. He can look at us and say, hey, that sin has been paid for. I know you might be surprised with you. I'm not surprised with you. I'm not flinching. I see what you've done. In full view of that, I came the first time. So what would change my mind about you now? Come on, get up. I'm with you. I'm not going to lead you. In fact, I'll use that to lead you more into heaven now until I bring you all the way home to glory. That's the gospel. And when you taste of that kind of never stopping, never giving up, never flinching in the face of our foolishness, death-defying love that will drag heaven back down to this world and wash it over anew and say, here's a gift and an inheritance for you because I love you and I'm even going to give you a taste of it now. When you experience that the king of heaven loves you like that, that's when you will with joy say, nothing else in this world can compare to you. If I get heaven and the king of heaven is for me, What's going to compare to that? Greg Johnson, he captures this so well, and I think given the topic of today, I just want to let a gay, Jesus-loving Christian have the final word on this. Listen to what Greg Johnson says as he looks back over his life. He writes this. In a culture that elevates romance and sex, being coupled is things that make life worth living, this can be a very hard conclusion for some of us to hear. Everything we've been talking about today. I have only ever had romantic or sexual feelings toward other men. Family members tell me they wish I had a special man in my life, someone to walk through life with. And I tell them, I do. He's my Lord Jesus. And he's not all. I have lots of other special someones whom I've been walking through all these years with. He's talking about his church family there. The reality is this. I am convinced that for me to engage in a loving, non-abusive, mutual, long-term sexual relationship with another man, for me to grab a hold of his hand, I would have to let go of Jesus' hand. And there's not a man on the planet who's worth that. That's a guy that's seen the treasure in the field. And look, I entered this study hoping to find a biblical reason to leave all of this stuff behind. And, and here's what I found along the way. As I open up the word of God and the spirit of God is speaking. What I found along the way is this stuff is Jesus's stuff. And though we are imperfectly communicating it and we have our own stuff to work on, 
This stuff is ultimately Jesus' stuff. And where the real Jesus is faithfully proclaimed, he loves to show up and write beautiful, incredible stories like Greg and countless others I've encountered that have moved my soul and stirred my spirit to see afresh how real the treasure is. That Jesus is really better than anything else in this life. And that's the vision for our gay friends. It's not come and be a second-class citizen where we're all going to look down on you and make you the butt of all the sermon illustrations. No, it is come and show us the way. Because Jesus' call to the gay community to, I know it looks good, but I have better for you. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's not just his call to them. That's his call to all of us to come and to taste and see that the treasure is real and to follow me more and more into life that is truly life. And so my question for you this morning, we we got lots we need to think about as a church and what we're doing in this community, but I want to end with you. Where do you need to do that this morning? Where do you need to see that the treasure is real? Is there something that Jesus, that that the spirit of Jesus is beginning to stir in you this morning? Is there something that he's calling you to leave behind this morning to step out into the field afresh? Um, We're going to give you some time to reflect on that. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit preach the rest of the sermon on that. Um, But I will say this, spend some time reflecting. And when you are ready, here is the invitation come to the table and taste and see that no matter what we confess to him this morning, no matter what darkness or brokenness is in our life, that the Holy Spirit begins to tug and say, hey, I'm talking about that. It's time to leave that behind so that you can have that joy that Greg is talking about there. Come to the table and celebrate that no matter what you confess, no matter what comes up this morning, no matter what you repent of, he is still for us and he hasn't flinched in his love for us and he has bound himself to us. So come and taste and see of that reality and then we'll sing and praise him for what he's done.